0: Hello and welcome to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. I'm Susanna Streeter, I'm the Senior Investment and Markets Analyst here at Hargreaves Lansdowne and as usual I'm with Sarah Coles our Senior Personal Finance Analyst. And Sarah, I know you've said you've been a bit of a voice of doom lately because we've seemingly had nothing
1: but bad news for people's finances. Are you feeling particularly doom-laden today? Oh, I'm sorry. I always feel really terrible doing this, but I'm just no cheerier than usual. Um, I've actually spent some time looking back over the past six months because we've been working on the latest edition of the HL Savings and Resilience Barometer with Oxford Economics. And it made me realise that in January, we actually dared to feel slightly optimistic that the worst of the pandemic was over. And of course, now the cost of living crisis means an awful lot of us are struggling with money far more than we were at the, even at the height of the pandemic.
0: Yeah, I can see why you've decided to be the voice of doom. There is certainly a lot of worry around, but there are some bright spots. Call me an optimist and some markets are seeing some positivity. So we'll explore some of that a little bit later. But we are delving into some of the challenges facing people's finances to start off with in this episode that we're calling Reading the Barometer, Feeling the Pressure.
1: Yes, we'll be talking to Nathan Long, a senior analyst at the policy team at Hargreaves Lansdowne, who's been instrumental in putting the barometer together. Nathan, it's a massive piece of work, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it sure is, Sarah. I think I've got the additional grey hairs to prove it. It's something we put together with the specialists at Oxford Economics, which takes a huge number of different measures of people's finances. It brings them all together so that we can understand exactly what's going on in people's financial lives right now. But actually, one of the real benefits of this work is that we can also use it to forecast what we think's coming down the tracks as well.
1: I'm going to hope for some optimism in there, although I suspect there are some really tough months to come. We're also chatting with Helen Morrissey, our senior pensions analyst, who's been looking at the implications for pensions.
3: Yes, we've been looking in particular at how the way we save for pensions might change and modelling the impact that that would have on people's overall finances. Well, looking
0: forward to hearing more about that a bit later, Helen. There are certainly some really interesting challenges ahead. And we're also looking forward to finding out more about what the tougher environment means for retailers. With a catch up with Sophie Lund-Yates, who's our lead equity analyst, of course. And Sophie has been looking at how some businesses might weather the storm. We'll also catch up with Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Analysis and Research, who's been speaking to Edward Smith, Co-Chief Investment Officer of Rathbones Investment Management. And we will of course have the quiz and this time we're looking at some great money-saving tips through the ages, so I hope you're ready Sarah.
1: Oh, finally, something that feels a bit more familiar. I might actually be on for more than a couple of points this time. But before we get to the quiz, it's worth exploring where we find ourselves right now. So the Office for National Statistics regularly asks people about their concerns about rising prices. And in its survey in June, nine in 10 people said the cost of living was rising. So we're still overwhelmed by worries about energy bills and prices at the supermarkets. But after more than a month of record petrol and diesel prices, one in five people said it was their biggest cause of anxiety. And the same study found we were doing an awful lot of really the most sensible things that we can in order to cut costs. So that includes things like shopping around and cutting out luxuries. But some people are actually turning to more drastic measures including two in five who are actually buying less food. And I'm gonna be
0: the voice of doom now because the latest from business indicates that the worst isn't over yet, I'm afraid. The latest snapshot from the Office for National Statistics shows that almost a third of businesses are expected to increase the price of goods or services they sell in July so this month right here and now. Now already shoppers are showing signs of setting strict limits on spending and this warning that further price increases are on the way will be another blow to their financial resilience. The urge to socialize may be strong, I certainly have it but it is set to get even more expensive in many bars, restaurants and hotels. Accommodation and food services was the sector with the biggest proportion of businesses expecting to hike prices in July with almost half the firm set to pass on higher costs to customers. Companies are really struggling with higher input prices and rising gas and electricity bills in particular are becoming so onerous that bosses can no longer keep absorbing them. So consumers are having to make some pretty big choices about budgeting and the hospitality industry is bracing for a decline in spending as the cost of living crisis intensifies. The economy is already set to contract in the second quarter of the year and stay pretty fragile in the months to come. Now, at some point, Sarah, this weakening demand should help bring down inflation, but it is going to be a pretty arduous adjustment for companies and consumers. The governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, has warned that the UK should expect to suffer a more severe bout of inflation than other major
1: economies. And then, of course, even on top of that, we've been wrestling with tax rises. So finally, there's some good news on that front, because the national insurance threshold moved on the 6th of July, which is likely to feed into pay packets at the end of this month. It means 30 million people will see their take home pay rise and 2.2 million will be taken out of paying national insurance entirely. So for those who pay it, it'll mean they pay less, which can only be a good thing. But we do need to put that in context because this is actually just a tweak to a tax that was hiked in April. And while most people will pay less tax, almost a third of working taxpayers will still be paying more NI than they were before March – And at the same time, the freeze on income tax thresholds has been inflicting more damage. So the Institute for Fiscal Studies estimates that by the time we've lived through four years of threshold freezes, so that's in 2025 to 26, almost every worker will be paying more tax. So it means tax will be adding to the burden of higher prices again, which isn't the good news I promised. Never mind,
0: Sarah. Thanks anyway. But it is against this backdrop that the Savings and Resilience Barometer has been produced. So let's bring in Nathan Long, who's a senior analyst in the policy team here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. And he's been working really closely on the barometer over the past six months. So Nathan, can you start by telling us a bit more about what the barometer actually is?
2: Yeah, sure. This is the work that we do in partnership with Oxford Economics. So the HL Savings and Resilience Barometer measures the financial resilience of the nation, and it does it every six months. So it's structured around the five pillars of our finances that we think need to be balanced carefully for us to be financially resilient. Now, these are controlling your debts, protecting your family, saving for a rainy day, planning for later life, and investing to make more of your money. Now, what's really unusual about the barometer from a research perspective is instead of looking at something like savings or debts on their own, It draws all of this together for a holistic measure of the state of our personal finances.
0: So what have you found?
2: Well, overall, the barometer has really revealed just how tough things are right now. So the the cost of living crisis is basically laying waste to the extra resilience that we managed to build up during the pandemic. Now, when you factor in inflation into people's wages and subtract the cost of the basics, you're basically left with something that's known as real disposable income. Now, that's down 3%. So basically, people have got less to live on now. Now, as a result of this, in the past three months, we project that 41% of households were forced either to cut their costs, dip into their savings, or borrow more money to cover their costs. But it's also showing that not only are things bad, they're going to get even harder.
1: I hardly dare ask, but what do the forecasts show?
2: So the barometer looks forward 12 months to see how much worse things might be by then, and it really isn't good news. So income isn't set to recover. Even factoring in the government's lump sum payments is going to remain broadly flat for the rest of the year. Uh, the last time we ran the barometer, so that was in January uh, of this year, overall people had actually managed to build... Their resilience during the pandemic, and that's because they were going out less often, spending less, and so they actually were forced almost into building up additional savings. But this time, we know that by the time we get to the middle of next year, all of that extra resilience that was built up is going to have been wiped out. And it's not even. So the highest three-fifths of earners may have less to save, but the lowest two-fifths may be forced to eat into their savings or borrow more. The bottom 20% of earners we know will see any savings from the pandemic wiped out over the next year completely. So given that they were less likely to have been able to build up savings during lockdown it means that more of them will be forced to borrow. It's just going to widen the gulf between the high income and the lower income households. One of the key advantages of the barometer is that it looks at our finances holistically to understand the implication of all these changes. So it it shows that not only will higher inflation mean fewer people have enough income to get them to the end of the month, but we're also building up problems for the future. So the work shows that we're set to save less over the next 12 months, fall further behind on pension saving and invest less on average, just as times get tougher. Now... It's easy to kind of focus on the short term when we're in sort of times of, times of sort of crisis, but, but pension savings really aren't going to keep up with the amount of money we'll need in retirement because of this rising cost of goods. So anyone who finds a little bit of extra surplus income, if they're able to stay on top of rising prices, actually they shouldn't overlook the need to put money away for the longer term and continue to build their resilience in retirement.
1: So you mentioned inequality there. So how is that going to be affected?
2: Well, the forecasts show that it's going to hit those on lower incomes three times harder than those on the highest incomes. And that's partly because they've got less to fall back on, partly because they've got less wiggle room in their budgets to begin with, and it's partly because they spend a larger proportion of their income on essentials. So what that means is the runaway cost of things like gas, electricity and food, they're going to have enormous problems for the household budgets of particularly lower-income households. So the result of all that is basically the gulf between the resilience of higher and lower income households that grew during the pandemic already is going to widen again as the impact of cost of living crisis really starts to bite. Now there's every chance that the lower earners will need more support as we go through the year which could mean that any future government interventions are targeted even more specifically at those of the greatest need. Although Clearly, at the moment, the government's approach is hard to second guess, given the state of flux that it it finds itself in currently. It's also going to mean that it's essential for anyone discovering that they can't make it to the end of the month, goes and gets help sooner rather than later.
1: So you've talked about what's clearly going to be a really challenging time for people on lower incomes. But it's not all plain sailing for those who are earning a bit more, is it?
2: No, it's not. And actually, higher income households are still going to have their fair share of problems because... Whilst they'll be able to hang on to some of their lockdown savings, there's, there's other issues as well. So because we've got this interest rate rise coming through, it's going to be harder to cover the cost of borrowing, especially for those with big mortgages who are on fixed rate deals. Now, we're not expecting huge number of fixed rate deals to expire in the short term, but longer term, that is going to be a bit of a, a, bit of a problem. And that's going to hit those higher income households particularly hard because they tend to borrow more. So it means that with this group in particular, the higher income households, it's worth getting to grips with that borrowing sooner rather than later. So there's a strong argument for cutting back wherever possible and paying back expensive borrowings so you're living life less deeply in the red.
1: There's a huge amount to explore here. Can people go in and explore some of the findings themselves?
2: Yeah, they can. So we built a comparison tool on uh, the Highways Lansdowne website, which lets you identify people in the same boat as you and helps you understand your strengths and your potential weaknesses So links for this will be in the show notes for any listeners that are curious to find out more. We've also built out our personal finance five to thrive tips. Now, they offer support based around those five pillars of resilience that we talked about. And people can then go away and take steps to improve their own financial resilience.
1: Thanks, Nathan. Loads to get our teeth into there. I'm I'm sure we'll be catching up with you again in six months time. And hopefully we can look back at that point as this being the worst of it.
2: Yeah, I'd love to come back on. Hopefully we'll have some better news in six months time.
0: Thanks very much Nathan. Well, let's bring in Sophie Lund Yates now, our lead equity analyst at Hargreaves Lansdown. Sophie, you've been looking at some companies to watch. What's caught your eye in the healthcare sector?
4: Healthcare is an important one when trying to think of sectors that perhaps have a bit more resilience if and when the economic backdrop becomes a bit shaky. It falls into the category of non-discretionary. So that's the things that either people or companies will still need to buy no matter what. Health consciousness has only been heightened by by the conditions of the last couple of years too when, when we think about it. And that's why um, I've been looking at CVS Health, um, which is known Corporately, as a health solutions company. Um, Now, the company segments include pharmacy services, retail, and healthcare benefits. The group has close to 10,000 retail pharmacy locations across most of the US. Colombia and Puerto Rico. Um, CVS claims that there is a CVS pharmacy within five miles of most Americans. And it's this extensive network that really sets it apart, um, with convenience being a core driver of traffic as well. Added to that, there's also a mail pharmacy service. Um, I think it's important to mention cost here. So CVS has a has a focus on keeping costs low, which can be a tactic that hurts margins, um, but not if volumes rise enough. And that's obviously the, the crux of it. And for Frankly, that is a balancing act the group is getting right. There are also some exciting growth areas, especially looking at primary care and and home health, in my opinion. And I mean, financially, looking at the first quarter, which ended back at the end of March, total revenue for CVS Health rose by almost $8 billion um, to $76.8 billion. So within a a whisker of $77 billion, which beat estimates by $1.5 billion. And within that, underlying operating profit rose from $4.2 billion to $4.5 billion. This attractive model contributes to a prospective dividend yield of 2.4%, with the projected dividend currently looking very well covered by earnings. Now, figures are from Refinitiv, I should point out, and they are correct as at the 4th of July. And as ever, please remember that no dividend is ever guaranteed and yields are variable. Our listeners are probably wondering what the downside is. So CVS is benefiting from over the counter covid vaccines and tests um, and while demand should be elevated for for a while in my opinion it will wind down and the exact pace and trajectory of that is 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 hard to say and as with any stock a worse than expected performance could dent sentiment
0: okay sophie so that's uh, one to watch potentially in healthcare but what about the luxury market
4: I've been looking at luxury giant Hermes. I'm probably butchering that a pronunciation, but as long as my mum's not listening, we're fine. Um, luxury names, and I'm talking real high-end luxury rather than your mid-scale names, can have more going for them in hard times. That's because their traditional ultra-wealthy customer base is far less affected by the ups and downs of the economy and is less likely to feel a life-altering pinch from inflation compared to retail chains relying on more middle-class incomes. There are a couple of luxury names I could have chosen for today, but I wanted to talk about Hermes, which is the maker of the famous $9,000 Birkin bag. Now, the main appeal of luxury names are their brand power, which is what allows them to charge big and inflate margins in the process. I'm especially impressed by the group's efforts to protect the brand, despite enormous demand. It said it won't increase production of Birkins by more than 8% and instead prefers to have long waiting lists. That is savvy in, in my book. Now, the group also has best in class operating margins, which at a stonking and I don't use that word lightly, 40% are very impressive and help underpin the group's ability to pay a dividend and stomach any disruption. Now, it won't come as a surprise to hear me say that the luxury sector suffered over the pandemic with stores closed around the world. However, the group's revenues are back at pre-pandemic levels and are expected to reach 10.5 billion euros in the current financial year. The one drawback to keep in mind is that growth from here is expected to be quite slow. So slow and steady can be no bad thing at all. But this isn't something investors should be looking at as an exciting name in the sector, is what I would say.
0: And finally, let's uh, move from luxury to the high street. What's your
4: take on Associated British Foods? At the opposite end of the spectrum, we have Primark, which is owned by Associated British Foods. um, And Primark is the biggest division for the group. So as households feel pressure with a weaker economic outlook, consumers can slide down the value chain to discount options. Now, this is a dynamic I think is much less likely to be seen at the upper to middle fashion ranges. But those feeling the pinch in the middle of the market might well start shopping at Primark instead. The group's also more likely to be able to capitalise on that shift because it has proven it has its pulse on trends, where they're able to shift absolutely huge piles of excess stock after lockdowns, um, despite not having an online shop to speak of. So that was impressive in my book. I was genuinely impressed by the speed it was able to do this. And that only happens without having to have a huge sale when your buying processes are on the money. Now, as ever, I need to give the other side of the argument and a very steep recession would result in pretty much all fashion retailers facing a challenge. So while I think Primark is is much better placed than some, I certainly can't be ruling out any ups and downs. Thanks, Sophie. Really great to get your
0: take. And we're now going to come back briefly to the barometer because we've got some more really
1: interesting findings. Part of the barometer work this time round has been a more in-depth look at pensions. So let's speak to Helen Morrissey, senior pensions analyst at Hargreaves Lansdown. Helen, we use the barometer to track people's resilience when it comes to getting ready for retirement. How has this evolved? So the barometer
3: has thrown up some really interesting insights. So 10 years ago, rules were introduced that meant anyone aged over 22 and earning more than a certain amount was automatically put into a workplace pension unless they opted out. Now, this is what is known as auto enrolment. This got people saving, but the big issue now is whether they're actually saving enough. So the current minimum contribution is currently 8%. Now that's made up of a 3% contribution from the employer and a 5% contribution from the employee. This is a great start, but it's not enough for most people to generate a decent retirement income. So we are still risking people retiring on not enough money to meet their needs. So aren't there plans though, Helen, to to increase the minimum contributions, to help people save more, do you think that is the best way forward? There has been a lot of discussion of how we can get people to contribute more to their pensions and in the 2017 auto-enrolment review, the government looked at options such as allowing people to be enrolled from the age of 18 rather than 22 and letting people start contributing from the first pound of their earnings. Now it said it would look to introduce these reforms from the mid-2020s and it has come under a lot of pressure recently to put some kind of timetable in place. In addition to this, the ABI has made further proposals on increasing minimum contributions. Its recent report proposes to bump the employer contribution up to 5% in the first instance, which would bring the minimum contribution up to 10%. There would then be an option for both employer and and employee contributions to increase to 6% each over the coming years. Now, there are positives to this, but we do have to be careful about adding to the burden on people, especially during the current cost of living crisis.
0: Yeah, you're right, Helen. But saving more for retirement is surely a good thing for people's financial resilience. It's a very tricky balance, isn't it?
3: It is, so putting more away for retirement will certainly help people's long-term resilience. But people need to balance building their long-term resilience with what they need in the here and now. So we use a barometer to model both scenarios I mentioned above, so expanding auto-enrolment and then increasing contributions to 12%. Now, in both cases, we saw a demonstrable drop in short-term financial resilience for people, particularly those on lower pay, if they were to be introduced, particularly during the current climate. So can you tell us a bit more about what you found? So looking at the data, it's clear that any changes to auto-enrolment need to be carefully timed and now is not the right time to make any changes. If we did see changes, the likelihood is is that we would just see very high rates of opt-out as many people simply can't afford to contribute to their pensions or contribute more to their pensions rather right now. Delaying it to 2025, when we're more likely to have more normal conditions, would certainly help in terms of minimising these opt-outs. Now, if we did this, the barometer shows us that if we increase contributions to 12%, then we could see a just over 9% increase in the nation's long-term retirement resilience after five years. But this would come at a cost. Our modelling shows that these changes would mean that people's surplus income would dip by almost 9% and savings could see a drop of 10%. So if we just looked at expanding auto enrolment, we would still see a 3.5% increase in retirement resilience. But again, a 3% fall in surplus income on average, as well as a similar drop in emergency savings.
1: It sounds like a a really tough one, but what do you think the approach should be?
3: We believe the government should press on with the proposed automatic enrolment expansion plans. So this is moving the age down from 22 to 18 and allowing people to contribute from the first pound of income. However, we think it should be timetabled some way in advance so we can be sure that any lingering effects on the cost of living crisis are not still in play. So the modelling from Oxford Economics suggests that this should not happen before 2025 at the earliest. In terms of the other suggested amendments, we don't think that minimum contributions should be increased further. Instead, we need to explore how we can encourage people to voluntarily increase their contributions where possible. This would give people a compelling reason to engage with the pension, and it means that people only save more as and when they're able to. It has a real potential to help people build their longer-term financial resilience while not damaging their day-to-day finances.
0: Thanks very much, Helen. It does look like a really difficult balance that it's crucial to get right. Thanks again. You're listening to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. And now I'd like to bring in Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Research and Analysis here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. And she's been talking to Edward Smith, who's co-chief investment officer of Rathbone's Investment Management.
5: Hi, Edward. Hello, Emma. So we are talking at a time of considerable political uncertainty. Everything seems rather up in the air. So in the interest of being non-timely. We won't talk about politics, but I would very much like to talk about economics. What is the outlook for the UK economy from where you're sitting?
6: Well, our outlook for the UK economy is, is quite a pessimistic one. While we do not think that a recession is likely to start globally or in the US in the next six to 12 months, we are running with a uh, greater than 50% chance that the UK economy falls into a recession. Household sector is likely to suffer a bigger hit from a fall in the uh, standard of living as people's wages get eroded by inflation. A little more severely than in some other parts of the world. Its business investment sector isn't really going to be picking up the slack. That's been extremely weak all the way back to 2016 since the vote to leave the EU. And household savings in the UK, whilst you know, there are plenty of excess savings, they're a little more inequitably distributed than elsewhere and probably are less likely to be drawn on given that huge plunge in consumer confidence.
5: Looking back around 14 years ago, 13 years ago, 2008, 2009, 2010, where we saw a global recession, that saw everything get pulled down together from the global financial crisis. I think it's quite interesting from what you're saying today, there are some differences between different countries and different regions and in part that's to do with with energy prices isn't it because the US is much more self-sufficient when it comes to energy and therefore potentially isn't as hard hit as we are here in the UK by the energy prices which have just gone through the roof since Russia invaded Ukraine.
6: Yeah, that's absolutely right. So, I mean, look at natural gas prices, for example. So the wholesale price of gas, what the people we buy our gas from pay in the market uh, in Europe or in the UK has risen sharply, particularly in Europe in the last few weeks, as its delivery of gas from Russia has been squeezed even further. But in the, the US, uh, wholesale natural gas prices have actually spent the last few weeks falling and, and they're much, much lower over there than they are over here and that's really going to hurt manufacturers as well like if we look at the average price of energy from all different sources of energy translated into a sort of price per barrel of oil equivalent uh, as we call it so in europe they're paying around about 180 a barrel of oil equivalent for their energy in the us it's only around about 55 dollars and in the UK, well over 100. There's some other key differences to the US as well, a slightly better uh, momentum in, in household spending, a larger cash of, of savings to draw on, and more buoyant uh, business investment too.
5: There are a number of factors that are completely out of political and household, and, and even Bank of England control when it comes to the headwinds in front of us. Inflation is running very high, not just here in the UK, but across the world. What can the powers that be do to try and control that inflation?
6: I don't think there is an awful lot that the central banks can do to today's inflation to bring it back down, particularly in the UK, where around about 75% of the inflation is coming from either food or energy, or the categories of goods that had outsized demand during lockdown and supply chains that failed to keep up. So now those three categories, food, energy and and certain types of goods, are not something that are really where the inflation is really domestically generated, where this UK central bank, by changing interest rates, could really hope to well demand and bring inflation back down. So the obvious question is, is, is why are central banks doing anything at all? It's to stop the inflation today becoming really entrenched and generating even more inflation tomorrow or, or next year as inflation expectations start to rise and people start to demand higher wage growth. That's what the bank is trying to quell. The actual inflation we're seeing today, as you say, is, is largely not really within their control. And
5: I suppose the multi-billion trillion dollar question is, how long does this last?
6: As investors, I think we're going to need to see a few more months of data before investors start to sort of climb back down that wall of worry that's been built up around when will inflation peak, at what level will interest rates uh, rise to core prices look as though they have started to peak but they are falling back uh, at a slower rate than anticipated so there's a little way to go on that one as for the uk economy going back to where we started this conversation i think this pain for household consumption is likely to continue until certainly uh, into the first half of 2023 Remember, headline inflation isn't going to peak until the fourth quarter, most likely, because we've got more rises in our energy, costs as the off chem energy cap gets raised again.
5: Edward, thank you very much. Thanks, Emma. That was Emma
0: Wall, our Head of Investment Research and Analysis at Hargreaves Lansdown, talking to Edward Smith, Co-Chief Investment Officer of Rathbone's Investment Management. Please bear in mind that these are the views of the fund manager and are not individual stock recommendations.
1: You're listening to Switch Your Money On. And finally, it's time for the quiz. And Suzanne has been tracking down some unusual ways of saving money, which sounds far too practical and useful to be one of our quizzes.
0: Well, you have to judge for yourself whether they've really stuck to the useful things. Mrs. Beaton in her book of household management published in 1861, and I do have a copy on my bookshelf. You'll have to have an eagle eye to some of my TV appearances to check that out, but I do. She had lots of top tips for managing the household budget and recipes for cheap meals. But which of the following bargain meal was on the list? It was on Mrs. Beaton's list. Was it stone soup? toast sandwiches or lettuce salad
1: (laughs) well none of them sound particularly delicious but you know i have memories of stone soup as being a children's story so i don't think it's that one i'll go for lettuce salad no it was a toast sandwich (laughs) honestly
0: it was a piece of dry toast between bread and butter but crucially with salt and pepper to taste which is impressively frugal we'll stick with some unusual cost cutting of the past This time it was during the 1940s. In an effort to cut back during the Second World War, what change were people advised to make in the bathroom? Was it to put a brick in the cistern to use less water? To use lard instead of soap? Or was it to use no more than five inches of bath water in your weekly
1: bath? (laughs) Weekly bath, that's impressive. Um, They all sound a bit odd, uh, but, but you know, lard was probably just as hard to come by as soap, so it can't be that. So I will. I'll stick with limiting your bath water. Yes, you are right.
0: People were encouraged to paint a ring in the bath at five inches to make sure they didn't use any extra coal to heat the water. Apparently, even Buckingham Palace added these lines to their baths. Cue lots of lines being drawn on bathtubs as we speak. OK, coming forward a bit in time and off to the supermarket. One of the best ways to cut your costs is to consider an essentials range, but If you were shopping at Waitrose, which of the following could you snap up from its essentials items? Is it olives, brie,
1: egg tarts, pâté
0: or bottled water?
1: (laughs) You know, I know that the Waitrose essentials range, it takes some pretty upmarket items. So I think it might be all of them
0: you're right as well as pre-sliced cheese and olive oil none of which are the first things you think about though when it comes to buying from the budget range but they're all essentials in waitrose okay sticking with the supermarket in tesco where is the cheapest place to buy cashew nuts is it in the nuts and seeds section roasted and salted and store with the snacks or in a larger bag in the south asian section
1: oh well it's the sort of thing that tends to be cheaper with the ingredients for specific cuisines. So I guess it's the South Asian section. But, but you know, this feels like it might be a trick question.
0: You're right in a way. It's the exception to the rule. They are actually cheapest of all roasted and salted at £11.43 per kilogram, almost a pound cheaper per kilogram than if you bought it with the nuts and seeds so you could wash off all the salt and save a bit of money, Sarah. (laughs) I don't know if it's worth the
1: effort, though, really, is it?
0: I don't know, maybe you could use that old bath water that you've drawn a ring round your bath for at the end. Double up on all those money-saving tactics. (laughs) That's all from us for this time. But before we go, we need to remind you that this was recorded on the 11th of July, 2022, and all information was correct at the time of recording.
1: Nothing in this podcast is personal advice. You should seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you. Investments rise and fall in value so you could get back less than you invest. And past performance isn't a guide to the future.
0: Yes, this is not advice or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any investment. No view is given on the present or future value or price of any investment. And investors should form their own view on any proposed investment.
1: And this hasn't been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research and is considered a marketing communication.
0: Non-independent research is not subject to FCA rules prohibiting dealing ahead of research. However, HL has put controls in place including dealing restrictions, physical and information barriers to manage potential conflicts of interest presented by such
1: dealing. You can see our full non-independent research disclosure on our website for more information. So all that's left is for me to thank our guests, Nathan, Helen, Edward, Sophie, Emma, and our producer, Elizabeth Hotson.
0: Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again soon. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know what you think. And do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you get a fresh new episode in your inbox as soon as it's ready. Goodbye.